Imagine a time when you could go anywhere in the world, no passport or visas required. Everyone around you seems to be on the move. Your neighbours eagerly show you letters from their sons and daughters, boasting of their new lives across the oceans. The word on everyone's lips is emigration. That one word rings on the platforms of public assemblies, echoes through the walls of literary institutions, stares one in the face in colossal placards. In the 19th century, emigration is a huge topic of conversation. It is everywhere, at every level. Books, poems, ballads, art, all of cultural life, really. For over 10 million British people during the 19th century, emigration offered an answer to their hopes and prayers. And around half of those migrants left from the port of Liverpool, joining millions of others from continental Europe to make their way to North America and all around Britain's growing empire. From the middle of the 19th century through to around about the First World War, Liverpool was the most important emigration port for the British Isles. Around 12 million people emigrated from the city. They sailed principally to North America, to the US and Canada, but also to Australia, New Zealand, India, to East Asia. So it was in every country and every continent. I'm Mukti Jane Campion, and this week I'm looking at the printed propaganda that fueled Britain's biggest century of mass emigration, and at how the port of Liverpool became the gateway to millions of new lives abroad. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 5, The Leaving of Liverpool. Farewell to Princess Landing State, River Mersey, fare thee well. I am bound for California, a place I know right well. Dear brother, it is now more than nine weeks since I left England. I dare say by this time you'll be expecting a letter and wishing to know how I like the land of liberty. An English emigrant writing from America in 1848. To begin at the beginning, we sailed from Liverpool on Sunday, July the 23rd at about 2pm. There was a very tolerable gathering of friends on the pierhead to bid us goodbye. Then, what a scene! As several other ships were leaving the same dock as us, the concourse of people on the pier was unusually great. The shedding of tears, waving of innumerable snowy scarves, Hurrahing and goodbying, mixed up with the singing of sailors, the captain and the mates bellowing out orders. Women on the extreme edge of the pier shrieking above all other sounds. Who wants any lemons? Well, they kept up a heavy assault of lemons into the ship, which the passengers returned with halfpence. The aforesaid women showed great skill in catching. Of course we played our parts, shouting until hoarse and waving our kerchiefs. The steamer which towed us out not leaving until 8pm. Previous to it going, our tickets were examined and all trunks had to be opened to see if anyone had smuggled aboard. At last we sailed down the river and lost sight of old Liverpool. So fare thee well, my own true love. And when I return, united we will be. It's not the leaving of Liverpool that grieves me, but 
my darling, when I think of thee. We're standing at the Albert Dock next to the River Mersey, which is really kind of very central to the historic city of Liverpool. Ian Murphy is director of the Merseyside Maritime Museum. If we'd been standing here in the middle of the 19th century, you'd have been in what was becoming the second biggest port in Britain and the world. You'd have looked out at a river that was far busier than it is now, a very bustling river full of sailing vessels, but also a mixture by that point of steamships, of tugs, of commercial craft. You'd have had some of the, the first of the early kind of liners out on the river, as well as you know some of the larger sailing ships working in and out of the port. Towards the north, there was the landing stage where some of the bigger liners would have left from. And beyond that, you'd have had some of the later dock developments like Clarence Dock, Trafalgar Dock and Waterloo Dock. The, the docks spread along that kind of part of the river as, as emigration increased and, and numbers increased. The 19th century saw mass migration take off at an unprecedented scale. It's estimated that nearly 60 million people left Europe, mostly to settle in North America. And it was Britain which led that exodus for most of the first half of the century, a time when its own population was rising rapidly. Over the course of the 19th century, the population of Britain more than tripled to over 40 million. The people in this country are rapidly multiplying and increase faster than they are able to feed themselves. So observed an agricultural reporter called Arthur Young, who travelled through West Sussex in 1813, observing the condition of the rural poor. Too many of their houses are the residences of filth and vermin. Their dressing insufficient, their minds uneducated, and their children, from insufficiency of earnings, trained to vice. Emigration was increasingly seen as a way to reduce the burden of the poor on local parishes and the country, as one supporter for government emigration schemes declared, Emigration is not to benefit the poor creatures. They were so badly off they wished to go, and we were glad to get rid of them. All across the country, land evictions and land enclosures were making life increasingly untenable for millions of agricultural workers. The sheer desperation of people in East Anglia is evident in this newspaper report from 1830. On Thursday last, a great number of persons passed through Bury in wagons. Many people appeared in great poverty. They were from the parishes of South and North Lopham and were on their way to embark at Liverpool for the USA. Between 100 and 200 are emigrating from these parishes, with a considerable amount of money being borrowed on security of the rates to defray expenses of passage, about £6.10 shillings a head, and to furnish each family a clear sum of £5 when they land in New York. Two couples from each parish married on Monday in contemplation of joining the party of colonists, and so anxious were some to quit the home of their sires, they sold off their little stock of furniture. During the 1840s, crop failures and extreme famine, especially in Ireland, accelerated the rural exodus. By 1850, emigration had become a buzzword everywhere. What is the most universal cry of the sons and daughters of England? Emigration. What is the advice that England gives to her distressed children? Emigrate. How does England apologise for her neglect of health, light, air and wholesome food for body and soul? Let them emigrate and they will fare better. 
What is England's recompense to the forlorn sister of her own shame? Ireland, emigrate again. The Emigration Cry, Sharp's London Magazine, July 1852. In the 19th century, emigration is a huge topic of conversation. There are debates about it in Parliament. The Passenger Act gets uh, revised multiple times because they're so worried about conditions on the ship. Faria Sheikh is a lecturer in Victorian literature at the University of Birmingham. She studied the so-called booster literature, which promoted emigration to a British public that was becoming increasingly literate in the 19th century. We're talking about pamphlets, we're talking about emigrants' letters that are often printed, collections, shipping advertisements or newspaper articles that kind of give you news on people who've migrated. So it's reflected in the everyday lived experience of people who might have seen an advertisement for emigration pasted on their village wall, or if they were waiting to take a train, saw an advertisement for the next ship going out, say, in the waiting room. Emigration kind of becomes a part of the national consciousness, a part of the wider imagination at this time. And how realistic do you think the emigration literature was? Um, You would be hard-pressed to find a printed letter in the 19th century that contains a negative story of emigration. And this is one of the features of booster literature, that the narratives are invariably of success. That So this equation of emigration with success is a very much part of a national endeavour, really, to encourage people to move, um, encourage people to go and take over other people's lands. People were actually able to travel quite freely. There was very little kind of restriction on transport. Ian Murphy again. Passports are a relatively recent development. Only from the early 20th century, people had these kind of documents for travel. Prior to that, it was much more open in terms of moving around the world. If you had your your fare, you could go elsewhere. And even if you couldn't scrape together the money, there were others who were ready to help you get out of the country. You've got Caroline Chisholm, you know, with philanthropic schemes. You've got actual settlement agencies that are competing with each other. You've got the government with their assisted immigration scheme. So you've got these lots of different channels of energy that are encouraging people to migrate. There's emigration from every country, from England, Scotland as well, notably Welsh migration to South America. By the 1850s, you had huge numbers of emigrants from Ireland as well, with the impact of the famine in Ireland. So it was a movement of people from right across the country, and Liverpool was really the, the best set-up port for that. Liverpool had been the pre-eminent port of the transatlantic slave trade until its abolition in the early 19th century. The trade had been fundamental to establishing the city's commercial and transport links. But it was the spread of the railways that really accelerated the growth of its emigration business. There was a train station called the Riverside Station, which appeared later next to the landing stage. Prior to that, though, you had people arriving by train in Central Station and then kind of travelling through the city centre itself. And it wasn't just British emigrants. All manner of continental Europeans, including Scandinavians, Germans and Russian Jewish emigres, would sail to Hull or London and then catch a train to Liverpool for their onward journey to North America. Moving through the city, you would see this range of dress not just traditional British dress. There's great film footage from the early 20th century of people boarding ships with Central and Eastern European clothing, different languages, children learning to say phrases like, can I clean your boots, mister, into Finnish. 
On arrival, emigrants had to book their onward passage, find lodgings for several days until their ship was ready to depart, and buy their own provisions for the long sea journey ahead. When emigrants arrived in the city, they were in a place they didn't know. They were kind of, in some ways, easy pickings for sort of the less scrupulous lodging house owners. There'd be a, a great deal of competition how they could make the most money from these kind of new arrivals. Liverpool gained a reputation for being the most crime-ridden city in Britain, with characters like the notorious shipping agent William Tapscott. As I was a-walking down by the Clarence Dock, I overheard an Irish girl conversing with Tapscott. Away, you Santy, my dear Annie. Oh, you Santy, I'll love you for your money. Good morning, Mr. Tapscott. Good morning, sir, says she. Oh, have you got a ship of fame to carry me o'er the sea? And away, you Santy, my dear Annie. Oh, you Santy, I'll love you for your money. Tapscott did indeed love the naive emigres for their money fleecing them at every opportunity. Most travellers would be trying to buy the cheapest fare, which meant travelling in what was known as steerage. From the early 19th century, the most economic route was via sail to North America. Conditions were hard, you know, really kind of rudimentary. So if you're in steerage, you can expect to be below decks in close cabins. The smell is something awful. Ventilation is a huge topic of conversation in the 19th century. Why would you even think about that today? You can just imagine it. There are young children on board the ships. There are animals on board the ship that are quite often slaughtered for food. And so there's all of the crying, the sounds, the screaming, the smells. It's not very pleasant below deck at all. Some people may consider a sea voyage a delightful affair, but our passage was five weeks long and became completely intolerable. This is our 1848 correspondent who we heard earlier, now describing his journey to New York. Day after day of seasick misery, and oh, how welcome those halfpenny lemons are now. What I relished most when sickly was rice and preserves and, and sucking lemons. I lived most entirely on these for several days. They were not necessarily the most sanitary of travelling uh, environments. If disease broke out, it could spread quite easily. To crown our misery, the bed and bedding were so thickly tenanted with unbidden guests of every description, we had to leave off sleeping on it. To be swarming with vermin was dreadful. One thing is certain. Whenever I cross the water again, it'll be first class, or not at all. The shipping companies are selling this kind of dream of, of emigrating to start up a new life. But you start to see a posters like this Cunard and Welcome to Canada. There's another one called Golden Prospects, which shows scenes of people working in a slightly sort of idealised farm setting in Canada somewhere. British boys, learn how to own your farm in Canada. Decide on Canada now. Free passages, good wages, farm instruction and assistance to buy your own farm for boys 14 to 19. We're sailing west. We're sailing west. To prairie lands sun-cussed and blessed. The crofters trail to happiness. The precious years of your life are passing away while you are waiting for a relief that may never come. The real remedy for your accumulated distress is in emigration. 
Embrace the present favourable opportunity of leaving a land where you live by taking the bread out of each other's mouths. The promise of a better life quite frequently comes up, not just in the shipping companies, but across different organisations. One of uh, Caroline Chisholm's pamphlets, for example, advertises it as meat three times a day. So this promise of a better life is at the heart, I think, of what companies um, and advertisements more broadly are using to encourage immigrants to migrate. And there are promises like free land, which are not unfounded. Canada is your land for the asking. Health and wealth. Inquire at any Canadian government agency. Soldiers who fought in the Napoleonic Wars will get acres and acres of free land if they go to Canada, for example, in the 1830s. And the image of the life that these companies and immigration agencies are selling is a life that is much better in the colonies in terms of the material comfort and the material wealth that you can expect. So if you are poor in Britain or, you know, struggling middle class in Britain, then the colonies are the place where you can raise your class and raise your quality of living by quite a good fair few notches. The census of 1851 shows more people living in towns and cities in Britain than in the countryside. And this is reflected in the changing mix of emigrants over the second half of the 19th century, becoming more urban and perhaps more aspirational rather than just desperate to survive. As Britain's empire expands, so do emigrants' opportunities. But despite the many and varied cultures and landscapes that British emigrants now find themselves living in, they seem to hold on to the familiar. Faria Sheikh again. Emigrants' letters are quite keen to allay fears to the people that they're you know, encouraging chain migration, who they're writing to. So they will say things like, Oh, you can find lace here. Don't worry. You know, it's not the backwaters that you think it is. You can find lace here. You'll have people saying, oh, and I saw men in white on on the green playing cricket. But they're actually in 19th century Sydney, not not in Britain at all. So there are these kind of snapshots of the way in which immigrants themselves, once they migrate, are constantly trying to eradicate that sense of distance and difference. The popular imagination is captured by Victorian adventurers in their pith helmets, tramping up mountains and through jungles, seeking new landscapes to tame. Charles Dickens does this wonderfully in uh, Martin Chuzzlewit, where settlers kind of go over and all they can see is just wilderness and bush and, you know, it's not fit for settlement. And so the the image, the stereotypical image of the good colonizer or the good emigrant is someone who's got his, you know, axe in his hand and he's felling trees and clearing the land and finding somewhere where there's kind of good soil for him to plant his garden and set up his house. In a world where Canadian forests stand unfelled, boundless plains and prairies unbroken with the plough, on the west and east, green desert spaces never yet made white with corn and to the overcrowded little western nook of Europe, our terrestrial planet, nine-tenths of it yet vacant or tenanted by nomads, is still crying, come and tell me, come and reap me. Thomas Carlyle, 1840. What the British people see when they go over is swathes and swathes of land just lying until going to waste not being used, it's not efficient, is one of the justifications for people coming over and using the lands more efficiently. From an indigenous perspective, you know, the land is communal, the land is to be traversed. 
When we think of mobility and migration, we think of it invariably as coloured white because they depict a white mobile world against a, you know, indigenous or uh, Aboriginal or black kind of static world, which is an unfair comparison or unfair binary to set up. Much of the migration that took place over the course of the 19th century was of single men, although more couples and families did emigrate together than in previous centuries. Some critics decried the loss of so many fit young men to the colonies, pointing to the surplus women left behind. The solution? Of course, women should go to the colonies too. To all single women, there is no place but Australia or Tasmania. From what we learn, nearly 5,000 women will be sent out in the course of this year to the Australian colonies. It will be the happiest perhaps the only happy incident in their lives. They will obtain service, high wages and husbands as soon as they please. The male population in Sydney is four to one. There could be no better matrimonial speculation, therefore, for ladies in want of husbands than to ship themselves off for this part of the world. Newry Telegraph, 1832. The second half of the 19th century saw the publication of a flurry of guidebooks to help settlers find their way in the new colonies. It's not uncommon within the 19th century anyway to write very authoritatively about a place, even though you've never been. And this happens in the context of migration as well. So Martin Doyle, he writes about, you know, where Canada is, where to go, but he's actually never been to Canada. Other authors and immigration kind of schemes produce guidebooks and manuals on how to emigrate that really play down the difficulties of migration. So if you're reading this kind of, you know, golden, success-filled genre of literature to try and help you emigrate, when you actually get there, you can be in for quite a sharp surprise. Susanna Moody writes about this, about her anger at, you know, expecting this easy start into life in the bush in Canada, but actually it being really difficult. Interest in emigration is industriously kept alive by pamphlets published by interested parties which prominently set forth all the good to be derived from a settlement in the backwoods of Canada, while they carefully concealed the toil and hardship to be endured in order to procure these advantages. They told of land yielding 40 bushels to the acre, but they said nothing of the years when these lands, with the most careful cultivation, would barely return 15. Susanna Moody, Roughing It in the Bush, 1852. Susanna Moody had a sister called Catherine, who also emigrated to Canada with her husband. She berates the guidebooks for ignoring the plight of women emigrants. Young men soon became reconciled to this country, which offers to them that chief attraction of youth, great personal liberty. Their employments are of a cheerful and healthy nature, and their amusements, such as hunting, shooting, fishing and boating, are peculiarly fascinating. But in none of these can their sisters share. The hardships and difficulties of the settler's life, therefore, are felt peculiarly by the female part of the family. Catherine Parr Trail, The Backwoods of Canada, 1836 The arrival of steamships in the 1860s revolutionises ocean travel, making it both safer 
and more predictable. The development of the liner is very much around ships dedicated to travelling with just passengers or the majority of just passengers. So it gives a sense of the scale of passenger trade and passenger travel across the Atlantic. Journey times are cut significantly. New York could now be reached in just over one week instead of five, and Australia was only two months away instead of four, making long-distance migration more accessible and less daunting. Emigration wasn't always perceived as being a a one-way journey either. The people would often work in North America and travel back as well. Shipping companies start operating more frequent and regular timetables and they improve conditions for emigrants, both when they arrive in Liverpool and on board the ships, because now they're competing for customers. You had a number of lines operating from Liverpool, companies like Black Ball, who specialised in emigration to Australia. In terms of North America, you had Oceanic, you had the Inman line, later companies like Cunard and White Star. There were a real range of different companies catering in a way to different markets, but all really trying to make inroads into what had become a very kind of lucrative business within the city. The shorter journey time to Australia means it soon begins to rival America as a destination for British emigrants. Britain had been sending large numbers of convicts to penal colonies in Australia for over a century. But the flow of voluntary migrants was kick-started by the 1850s gold rush. So just across the river over there, an emigration depot for Australian emigration was built in 1852 to try to kind of create facilities for migrants who were being attracted by the kind of promise of riches in Australia at that time. And Liverpool, as ever, was ready to cash in on this new flow of emigrants. Local merchants would make sure that they could supply anyone heading out with all the equipment they needed. So there was, again, a lucrative market in buying everything from your excavation materials, even down to buy a kind of a prefab house that was effectively a sort of a gold rush kit. You would buy this in Liverpool. You would carry it out on board ship with you and the, the crate that all of this came in would convert into the cabin that you could then stay in while you were, you were out in Australia. It's a lot of ingenuity. How many different ways can you make money from your migrants? It is. You, you don't need to leave the country yourself in order to make money out of the gold rush. I'm Liverpool born and Liverpool bred. Heave away, haul away. Long in the arm and thick in the head. We're bound for South Australia. Heave away, you rolling king, heave away, haul away, haul away, you'll hear me sing, but Australia. Australia's early links with Britain are very much around this idea of the penal colony. It's somewhere that you send the people you don't want to, to live out the rest of their days on the other side of the world. The gold rush, in a way, creates this idea of Australia as a destination where you go to make your fortune. It takes a hold as well in terms of people's imaginations. We've got a board game on display called The Gold Rush, based around the idea of sailing to Australia and making your fortune. So the perception of the destination changes very much. In South Australia, Western Australia and New Zealand, you can be rewarded for your labour and bring up your families in comfort, free from the gripping curse of poverty and may, by industry, in a few years become independent landholders. Free passages are offered to persons of good character, and every arrangement made conducive to your comfort while on the voyage and after you land. 
all Englishmen are interested in the prosperity of colonies which contribute so much to the wealth and grandeur of this country. Every information may be obtained on application. This evolves over time along with the, the other British colonies where then people are going out to make their own fortune, but also you know, to transform the country that they're going to, to make it a model a colony in the image of the sort of British motherland. So there's very much an encouragement of people setting up to carry on the, you know, the idealised white British communities overseas. By 1901, Britain rules a quarter of the world. So British people have countless opportunities to move freely around a whole network of colonies where they can expect to be afforded status and, of course, to be able to speak English. Just imagine you could become a colonial administrator in India, a sheep farmer in New Zealand, a banker in Hong Kong, a miner in the Cape, a surgeon in Sydney, a rubber planter in Malaya, a tea grower in Ceylon, a soldier, a trader, an explorer, a botanist, a missionary. So many choices. If you were prepared to board a ship, it was easy to believe that the world was indeed your oyster. Or, as Cecil Rhodes, Britain's notorious mining magnate and empire builder in southern Africa, famously declared, to be born an Englishman was to have won the greatest prize in the lottery of life. I contend that we are the finest race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. If there be a God, I think that what he would like me to do is paint as much of the map of Africa, British red, as possible. Cecil Rhodes, 1877. So this justification for colonial rule comes about from a number of different angles. And one of those is the rise of evolutionary theory that places races into hierarchies with white people at the top and people who are from Africa at the bottom and, you know, other people variously in between. But this racialized hierarchy is used as a justification for the civilizing mission of colonial rule, the 19th century. The church is one aspect of this. So missionary societies are one of the fundamental ways in which colonialism and empire spreads across the colonies. And this notion that Christianity is the better religion is something that's around from even before the 19th century, really. This kind of rhetoric around the Christian civilizing mission that justifies the appropriation of land, the appropriation of resources, the killing of hundreds and thousands of people Examining the lives of ordinary emigrants through their letters, it's hard to get much sense of their role in such violence. Here's one West Sussex emigrant writing home from the Swan River settlement in Australia in 1829. The natives are little black men, the women not so black. They are very sensible. They're not so troublesome as they were at first, since some of them have been shot. At the heart of it, settler colonialism is a really violent affair. But what is interesting when you read the literature is how much of that doesn't appear. It's the colonialism of the everyday. These are everyday migrants, everyday people who are moving over. You know, they're talking about really everyday, ordinary things. They're talking about seeds or can they send some nails over because nails are hard to come by in the colonies. It's the very ordinariness of what they're talking about that belies the violence of settler colonialism. It's a cover-up almost. 
mass emigration from Britain, especially to Australia, New Zealand and Canada, continued well into the second half of the 20th century, and those former colonies remain popular destinations for Britons today. For Liverpool, its heyday as a port of emigration began to recede at the end of the 19th century, as Southampton and London increasingly took over although transatlantic passenger liners remained a familiar sight in Liverpool's docks until the 1960s. Ian Murphy again. Liverpool's role in that transatlantic emigration and passenger trade, in a way, I think although people know about liners and they know the story of the city, the impact of that emigration through Liverpool around the world, I think that's maybe not necessarily appreciated. That's doubly surprising because most people in Britain today will have recent ancestors or maybe even living relatives who were part of that era of British mass migration. If we understood their stories better, might it change our conversations around modern migration? Faria Sheikh again. The scale of 19th century migration is absolutely unprecedented and yet we don't seem to talk about it. There seems to be so much concern and anxiety about people arriving on the shores of Britain that very conveniently this country seems to have forgotten the amount of people that it exported, sent out, that moved out of their own accord as part of Britain's imperial enterprise. To talk about migration today and the numbers of people coming to Britain without recognising that Britain was the biggest exporter of people in the 19th century is is wrong. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jane Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani and the singers were Peter Brown, David Wells Cole and Mary Keith. Historic readings were by Adrian Prater and Joanna Perslow. The podcast series is a CultureWise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council, England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.